One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast that tries to do something different. A discussion between Jim Power and Chris Johns about the issues of the day, political developments, economics, finance, and anything else that takes our interest. How are we different? We hope our discussions speak for themselves. You are most welcome to our podcast. Hi, Jim. Hi, everyone. As always, plenty to talk about, awful lot going on. First thing I wanted to mention today is a piece that I wrote for our Substack site, a blog, if you like, or a newsletter using Substack terminology. One of the things that our regular podcast listeners may not be aware of, particularly our recent ones, is that on our site we do have lots of written pieces as well. And, of course, I would urge everybody to read them. The most recent one was written by me, and it was partly a tongue-in-cheek piece about the way in which we're regarding the debate over Scottish independence and Irish unity is looking at it through the wrong lens and that it should be seen as more England leaving the Union and the incentives that they've got. And I explore those themes, as I say, in a tongue-in-cheek but also semi-serious way, really to make the point that the United Kingdom is very disunited at the moment. Even the Welsh are at it. Support according to opinion polls for Welsh independence, is rising. Nowhere near the same extent as in Scotland, but it's but it's certainly there. And I look at a whole host of issues associated with that and whether Boris Johnson actually cares about this or not. In keeping with that, there's been an absolutely fascinating opinion poll published only today on the question of a referendum about Irish unity. And British people were asked whether or not they would support, in the next 12 months, a referendum about Irish unity. And 34%, just over a third, said they would support. 30%, a bit less, said they didn't care. And 23% said that they would oppose. I remember Northern I- the then Northern Ireland Secretary, Peter Brook, all the way back in 1990, said, and it was a very important comment from a whole host of perspectives, that Britain had no selfish or strategic interest in Northern Ireland. My takeaway from that opinion poll is actually that there's no interest in Northern Ireland one way or the other from British people. And I can speak personally about my experiences talking to 
to various British people over the years about Ireland, there isn't much interest one way or the other. A fascinating poll. But moving swiftly on, Jim, today, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, quite simply, is what's going on in the Irish economy. I know we've had quite a lot of data out recently suggesting that uh, there's some interesting pockets of growth, COVID notwithstanding, going on. And that kind of fits into a global context as well. So maybe you'd like to bring us up to date with perhaps a a couple of minutes on the Irish economy. I should first say, Chris, that um, I am currently just completing a blog updating recent Irish economic data, and I'm going to be putting it up on the Substack site uh, this afternoon or later tonight after we get the Exchequer returns. So that'll give anybody interested a pretty detailed data trawl through the Irish economy to see what's actually happening. In terms of recent data here in Ireland, uh, I, I have spoken for quite some time about in various fora about the very diverse performance of the Irish economy, the dual economy, all of those areas of the economy that have been exposed to significant COVID-related restrictions, struggling big time, non-essential retail, the restaurant sector, hospitality general, the airline industry, and so on. And then we have that other part of the economy that has been absolutely booming. We look at the export performance of the tech of the chemical and pharmaceutical sector last year and indeed in the first couple of months this year very very strong export performance whereas the more indigenous export sectors particularly food struggling a bit at the moment because of brexit related issues more than more than anything else Um, and then if you look at what's happening in the labor market and we're, we're over the next couple of days we'll be getting the latest unemployment data but we're basically looking at over 600,000 people on either pandemic unemployment payment or on the live register. So a huge part of the uh, labour force struggling. But um, on Tuesday of this week, um, AIB published the latest purchasing managers index for the manufacturing sector. And the purchasing managers index, uh, we spoke about these in an international context um, over the last couple of weeks, you know, a reading above 50 means that more firms are expanding the contracting, a reading below 50, uh, vice versa. Um, on In April, the Purchasing Managers Index for Manufacturing soared to the highest level ever seen since this series began in 1998. And the press release accompanying the release of this statistic described Irish manufacturing as booming at the moment. Um, And that's indicative of the very strong multinational manufacturing um, thing that's going on in the economy. But it's it's also reflecting the fact that manufacturing in this country has been really unaffected largely by COVID-19. And this is a global phenomenon. We have spoken over the last few weeks also about the various purchasing managers indices around the world, all recovering very strongly, particularly on the manufacturing side. So this builds into the narrative of a really strong part of the Irish economy at the moment, which is really important in the context of employment, in the context of the public finances. And last Friday in our podcast, uh, you spoke at great length about the tech boom in the United States on the earnings front. And we say in this podcast that we like to try and join the dots. Well, actually, we failed miserably to join one important dot in that context. You know, we didn't relate 
that tech earnings boom to the tech sector here in Ireland and the implications of that for corporation tax receipts. And I suspect over the coming months, you will see a significant increase in the corporation tax take emanating from that global tech earnings boom that's going on at the moment. So good news for the Irish public finances on the tax side. Um, We're not going to see it, I suspect, in the April numbers that are going to be released later today. But over the coming months, I think you will see uh, strong growth coming through on the corporation tax side, which is good. And of course, the income tax side is holding up. Uh, A final statistic uh, that's published over the last couple of days was new car sales in Ireland. First four months of the year, uh, 55,000 new cars registered up by over 10% on the same period last year. That's the first four months of the year. Um, and of course, the thing that that year on year comparison misses is the fact that the motor industry was shut down for March and April of last year, whereas this year there has been click and collect going on. So a year on year comparison isn't very valid. But what I did this morning was I just looked at where car sales were in the first four months of this year compared to the first four months of 2019. And they're actually 25% lower at the moment. So despite the recovery in the headline numbers um, for non-essential retail, of which the car industry was included, it's a very, very challenging environment. Yeah, that point you made earlier about taxes and technology company profits, I think was interesting. It was a miss last week when we talked about it. Of course, it does depend on where these technology companies end up reporting these profits, which tax jurisdiction they end up in, and indeed in which tax year they end up in. I assume it is going to be in this Irish tax year at least. And they do have some flexibility about where they report their profits. That's part of the the whole debate that we've had with Seamus Coffey and that they're, they're having at the OECD and the EU and Joe Biden's joined in. So it isn't automatic that it's going to lead to a big increase in corporation taxes in Ireland. But I certainly think that you're right to highlight the possibility, if not probability, that it's going to have some effect. And uh, it will be something that we need to watch very, very close, closely indeed. A final question that I've got for you on the Irish economy relates to the uh, economic stimulus pandemic support package that was announced last year by the European Union. 750 billion uh, in total was was the figure. Um, It pales into comparison when we look at what they're doing over in the States. But hey, it's a start. And I know the Italians are getting very excited about what they're going to be able to spend in particular, but also other countries as well. So really two questions for you um, about the the stimulus. In the US, they call it the stimmy check, um, the actual checks that they're getting from Joe Biden. But when is Ireland going to get its stimmy? And do you think that there's anything to the um, uh, talk in the newspapers, at least, that uh, Ireland is being lent on by Europe about corporation tax and its ability to get its hands on a stimmy check? Okay, I think the first thing I should say, Chris, is that the people of Ireland should not be waiting for a check to arrive in the post Um, as happened in the United States, that is not going to happen here. Uh, So if we get a stimmy check, it will be for the country out of that 750 billion. But those in the know would argue, correctly so in my view, 
that 750 billion isn't enough. And secondly, that uh, it has been delayed far too long at this stage and that, you know, when it was really needed, it wasn't delivered. And this is typical of policymaking in the European Union. Every policy initiative that's taken um, takes days, weeks, months to reach agreement on. Um, and eventually what you end up with is some sort of watered down compromise. And that 750 billion uh, euro stimulus package, that definitely falls into that category. And you need just look at what's happening in the United States if you want uh, the contrast between uh, the US model and the European model. Uh, we, we, there is this speculation going on, as you say, that Ireland's ability to get access to some of that 750 billion uh, will be contingent on agreeing to do certain things on the corporation tax side. Um, I'd be very surprised, actually, if that materialised, because the notion that the EU would refuse to hand over part of a stimulus package because a country like Ireland would refuse to... Um, do what they want them to do in terms of corporation tax, uh, I think would be a recipe for absolute blowout in the European Union. However, uh, we have to accept, and we have discussed this also, and we discussed it with Seamus Coffey, and indeed amongst the two of us, that there is this ongoing pressure from Europe and from the OECD on countries like Ireland to do something about their corporation tax situation. So the pressure is there, but the notion that access to some of this funding would be contingent on acceding to those pressures, um, I think is a nonsense. I may be proved wrong, but I think it will be an absolute recipe for disaster for the European Union. Um, another point on that Ireland's, the bit of that 750 billion we are going to get um, it is going to be determined by the performance of an economy's GDP. And as we know, Ireland was the only country in the European Union last year to see positive growth of 3.4% in GDP. So that will immediately lessen the amount of money we are likely to get. And of course, that GDP number does not reflect what's happening in the real economy. Uh, but it's going to be very difficult to convince the Europeans of that argument and as you say the italians will be one of the biggest beneficiaries because their gdp um absolutely collapsed in the last 12 months so from an irish perspective i wouldn't be holding my breath uh believing that there's a stimmy going to arrive that's going to be a game changer for us it's not uh but you know having said all of that i think the uh the irish economy can recover and will recover without significant assistance from the European Union. What do you think? Yeah, I would agree that it, I think they were chancing their arm, trying to link what Ireland will get to some kind of corporation tax reform. I doubt very much whether it will come to it to anything. As you say, if it does, it would provoke the mo a most almighty row. One of the next things I'd like to talk about is we had some shenanigans in financial markets uh, this week a big sell-off for a short time anyway in the United States and particularly United States tech stocks when the Treasury Secretary of the United States, Janet Yellen, made some pretty anodyne remarks about inflation. What she said was that if, if inflation was to go up in the United States, that uh, interest rates would probably have to react as well, which is a bit like saying that uh, it's probably the case that the sun is going to rise in the east most mornings. But 
the market sold off heavily, initially at least, which tells me a few things. One, that the market is primed and ready and looking for anything that suggests higher interest rates the market is going to react to. And the speed of the reaction yesterday was just extraordinary. And it tells me that or confirms what we already know is that an awful lot of daily trading in in stock markets and other markets is governed by algorithms these days. It's not individuals making decisions on a keyboard. These are computer programs generating sell orders when the words inflation up, interest rates up, come out of a policymaker's mouth. What was especially interesting about that reaction is that it's also the case, it seems to me, that there are an equal number of algorithmic traders out there who are ready to buy that dip because the markets went down and then went recovered somewhat afterwards. And as we speak, European markets seem to be riding that wave quite well. The, The whole debate about inflation is one that we've talked about and we're going to continue talking about, I suspect, for some time. I was struck yesterday by a tweet from George Magnus a guy that you and I both have come across many times in our past. He used to be the chief economist at a great investment house called Warburg's that that eventually became UBS. And he had this very pithy remark to make about the whole debate. And I'll quote, we should stop equivocating. There's more to Bidenomics than economics. And if there's a bit of extra inflation as growth pops above trend, we shouldn't fret. I think there's an awful lot of insight into that comment. I think that uh, it's something that commentators on this side of the pond have completely missed, that this is not about inflation. This is not about fiscal policy as such in the old ways that we discuss it. It's all about politics. And it's all about a great experiment that's being performed in the United States, possibly the biggest economic experiment of our lifetimes. One of the biggest economic experiments of all time is going on over there. One of the consequences of that political experiment is economic. And one of those economic consequences is this debate about inflation. Yeah, I think the comments from George Magnus really did sum it up. And we have discussed this quite a lot since we began this series um, about what Biden is at. And I'm minded of a book that I once recommended to my book club, um, J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegies, which has been really revered as a publication in the United States over the last couple of years. Mike, can I just put in there, Jim? Did you yeah. know that he is a rising rising star in the Republican Party, already being spoken of, J.D. Vance, as a possible Republican presidential candidate in the future? I, I did indeed, Chris. Yeah, I've been re- reading all about him. But the, the book he wrote about hillbilly elegies, he, um, he described life in sort of um, hillbilly America, it was regarded as the basis for uh, what would become Trumponomics and the whole Trump phenomenon. You know, it des- it described massive social disintegration. Uh, it highlighted very clearly the massive inequality in the United States. Uh, incidentally, I thought the book was dreadful, totally overrated. Um, and in fact, for our book club, it was the lowest rating we've ever given a book something that my fellow book club members keep reminding me of uh, because I picked the book Uh, the film actually is somewhat better but anyway going back to what Biden is at and George Magnus comment um, it's absolutely correct that what Biden is doing has got to be viewed um, in from a perspective of addressing those issues of inequality and um, I would totally agree with Magnus's view that 
if this gives rise to a little bit of inflation, it's a small price to pay for the sort of reduction in inequality, uh, this fundamental New Deal type thinking that Biden is trying to drive in the United States. Uh, it'll be a very small price to pay. So, uh, but the markets being the markets will continue to focus on that. And we we have worked, at least we did work in our past life in markets for a number of years. And I always believed markets were irrational, stupid. Um, I never believed the markets were wrong because they are what they are. They're neither right nor wrong. They are what they are. But I could never really understand the logic of a lot of market movements and the short-term nature and so on. And that was really highlighted with what Janet Yellen said over the last couple of days. You know, interest rates may need to rise over time to keep the US economy from overheating. And she said that in the context of the $4 trillion welfare package and infrastructure package that's coming down the tracks over the next few years, rather than the stimulus that's already been given into the system from the previous fiscal stimulus packages. But you then, a comment like that elicits mar- massive market movement, massive market analysis. Is Yellen interfering um, as Treasury Secretary with the Federal Reserve? All of that sort of stuff. The, the markets were also focusing yesterday on comments she recently made about the inflationary pressures being transitory. So what she said yesterday, does this represent a massive about turn on her part. It certainly doesn't. Um, I think you summed it up very well by saying that her coming out with comments like that is akin to saying that the sun will rise in the east every morning. Uh, But there's the irrationality of markets. And uh, you mentioned the control and the influence that these program traders have using algorithms um, to drive markets from day to day. Is it mad for individuals like you and me to be actually investing in markets when you're up against that sort of um, behavior? It makes abundant sense to be an investor using the classically defined meaning of that term, which is about always thinking about long-term savings. But to try and compete on a day-to-day basis, day trading, it used to be called, with these algorithms is nuts. Yes, it's madness because you'll just be caught in a mathematical crossfire and you'll, you'll get buried. Um, and the only way you'll ever make any money day trading, in my opinion, these days is if you're lucky. You cannot get an information edge on, on these algorithms. And you certainly can't second guess what it is that they've been programmed to do. Um, you can certainly have guessed yesterday, for example, that there are thousands of algorithms programmed to sell if there's interest rate rises mentioned out of Janet Yellen's mouth. But you wouldn't have guessed, I think, that there are probably an almost similar number of algorithms programmed to buy the dip on the basis of what we saw yesterday. And God knows what's going to happen in the future. So yes, I think it it is mad. But the comments about inflation, I think, speak to all of those issues that we have been talking about. Warren Buffett, the world's richest man, been opining on this issue recently, as indeed everybody else has. And he reflected on the fact in all of the businesses that he looks at, there's inflation pressures. And you spoke about this debate, um, Yellen talking about it, Buffett talking about it, about whether the issue is whether or not these inflation pressures are transitory. So we're going to get an awful lot of this over the next few months. When we get an inflation print that's higher than expected, everybody's going to go nuts thinking, oh, my God, we're in trouble. 
And then other people are going to be saying, yeah, well, it, it's because of bottlenecks. It's because that there are supply shortages post pandemic and it's all going to be sorted out and it's not going to last. That, for example, is the position of the Federal Reserve, that it is going to be transitory. Paul Krugman, Nobel Prize winning economist, writes the New York Times, wrote at length yesterday saying precisely that. Why is everybody getting so worked up about what is essentially short term supply bottleneck driven increases in prices? But that said, when you look at something, look at the things that Warren Buffett pointed to, which we could all do about all the different price pressures that are out there, copper prices, commodity prices yesterday, for example, continued their upward trend across the board. If you look, wood or lumber, as it's called in the United States, reaching all time highs, uh, it, it does appear to be everywhere. And if you talk to businesses on the ground, those PMI service surveys that you mentioned earlier on are being reflected in the conversations that I and many other people are having with actual businesses. They're seeing supply constraints. Try putting in a new kitchen at the moment, Jim, or any kind of home improvement, and you'll find your suppliers telling you that everything from appliances through to the wood for your cabinets, all that kind of stuff is in short supply at the moment. And the issue is whether it's going to lead to a sustained inflation or not. Buffett is clearly concerned that it is. People in the markets are concerned. My takeaway is that overall, yeah, there are lots of worries, but the markets, particularly the all-important bond market, are saying we're prepared to take on trust that it's transitory. But I do think that we are going to be in for a lot of market trouble when US interest rates eventually do start to rise. So I do think they're probably going to rise sooner than the Fed thinks or at least the Fed is saying, imagining something's going to happen um, is very different to living through something. So I think those interest rate rises will be tricky for the markets. But even then, as an investor, I wouldn't be that worried. Put it the other way around, if interest rates don't go up eventually in the States over the next year or two, then something is seriously wrong because they're at zero effectively at the moment. And if we are normalizing, if growth is coming back in the way that we hope it is, not just a post-COVID bounce, but that bounce is sustained into a post-COVID recovery, then interest rates should rise. It's perfectly normal. So I, I would say, yeah, we've got interest rate trouble coming for markets, but looking through it, if you're an investor rather than that day trader, don't worry about it too much. But that's that's what I think. Anyway, let's stop talking about inflation now. And we promised that we would, from time to time on this podcast, talk about coronavirus, as we have done, and we'll call it COVID Corner. And I was struck by something written by Simon Ren Lewis yesterday. We've mentioned him before. And he wrote a blog post in response to an article, a paper that had been published in the Lancet Medical Journal about zero COVID, a subject dear to our hearts, a subject that obviously has been very live in Ireland over the, over the last while. And he essentially echoed the remarks made in this Lancet paper saying uh, zero COVID was the only correct strategy for every country to follow. And it's a complete mystery why so many countries like the UK, Ireland and the US and many other countries throughout the OECD didn't follow what New Zealand and Australia and a few others did. And I know you've had a look at it. Yeah, Simon Ren Lewis, who is a professor of economics in Oxford, he expressed shock at the response of many OECD countries to uh, their COVID response. And when you look at the the piece he wrote, and when you remember that Simon Ren Lewis comes from a certain ideological perspective, which would be 
sort of old fashioned Marxist, I think. Would that be a good let's, description? Let's, let's say lefty rather than Marxist. Lefty. Okay. Uh, but very much of, of the left wing persuasion. Um, he said he was not surprised at what Trump did in the States. He was not surprised at what Boris Johnson did in the UK. He was not surprised at what Modi has done in India. Or he was not surprised at what um, Bolsonaro has done in Brazil. And I guess those four leaders would be regarded as sort of right wing leaders. So, you know, Simon would have a pop at those, maybe with justification, different people, different views. But where he was really shocked was the response in Europe. He believes that the only strategy that could possibly have worked and that could work in the future is the elimination strategy. In other words, the zero COVID argument. And he cites um, five countries who pursued elimination strategy to a large degree, Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, Iceland and Japan. And he went on to argue that their elimination strategy has worked, um, has limited the amount of damage to their economies, unlike those countries, the rest of us effectively, who went through sort of rolling lockdowns and a less stringent approach to it. If, if you'd like to say that, even though I would not regard what we have lived through in this country in the last 12 months as um, a soft response to COVID, we have been subject to amongst amongst the most stringent conditions in a, of any other country in the world. But, but that aside... He believes that this whole argument about the trade-off between health and an economy is a total mistake, uh, that there is no trade-off and that the elimination strategy was the only strategy that should have been pursued. And those countries that have pursued it have succeeded, the others haven't. And he then went on to think about you know, why did certain countries respond in different ways? And I think this will be the subject of a, a lot of very interesting hindsight analysis over the next couple of years. But he reckons that many of those countries uh, were not getting high quality expert advice and also did not have high quality governments taking and interpreting that advice. It, it, it is really resurrecting stuff that we've been discussing here in this country through the Irish Science Advisory Group, the ISAG, um, who have pushed for a zero COVID strategy from the beginning. So Simon, certainly Simon Ren Lewis will feed into their narrative. And I suspect that within ISAG yesterday and today, they are circulating this piece um, amongst all their members and all the other people who believe in what they believe in. It's an interesting piece. It's a hard piece. I don't agree with it. It's kind of typical of the approach that left-wing thinkers, I think, have adopted towards COVID. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to figure this one out in my own head. Why have those on the left been so adamant about locking down as much as possible and destroying people's lives to the greatest extent possible? Well, they would argue that they're not destroying people's lives. Of course, they would argue that this strategy that they wish to pursue would have saved lives and that the death toll in countries like the UK and in the United States would have been much less and that their policies would have been life-saving rather than life-destroying. My own perspective on, on all of this is that it's very theoretical, verging on simplistic. And if you start from the basic premise that if you conceal your borders and then lock everybody up for 14 days you would have achieved zero COVID. And then if you had kept your borders sealed, you would have been COVID free. 
and a lot of lives would have been sailed. The salient issue for me is whether any or all of that was possible from a practical perspective. And it's interesting, as you say, Jim, that uh, unfortunately, perhaps this whole debate has become politicised with people of a left wing persuasion seeming to believe that this is what you could and sh- could and should have done and using it as a stick to beat governments with. I, in the first instance, would agree that if you had been able to seal your borders completely and lock everybody up just for 14 days, not leave the houses, you would have sorted this out. But of course, that didn't happen. And some would say you couldn't just seal everybody up for 14 days. And that once COVID had arrived, um, you then had to have some form of a lockdown that didn't quite amount to locking everybody in their houses, as they did in Wuhan, for example. And we're just not that sort of society. So therefore, what do you then do when you can only have partial lockdowns or something less than locking everybody up? And that's where I think the, the focus of these kinds of studies misses the point, which is rather than simply saying we should have locked down and we should have locked down harder and for longer, the right focus, and they do mention this in fairness, but I don't think they emphasize it enough, is that unless you've got an effective and I mean really effective, aggressively effective test and trace and isolate system, and your society is able to put one of those in place, then all of this is moot. Because once the disease is here, if you can't test, trace and isolate it, it's going to keep coming back, no matter what kind of lockdown you have, apart from that sealing everybody in their houses and apartments strategy. Secondly, I think that the taking a model of what happened in other economies and simply saying, if only we'd done that, we could have succeeded, is again a little simplistic because all of the countries that are mentioned did pursue different strategies. I think if you're an island economy like New Zealand um, and Australia with relatively little connectivity to the rest of the world, it is relatively easy to seal your borders. If 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 you've got a land border or thousands of truckers arriving every week, then it's a different kettle of fish. And you therefore need, if you've got connectivity, that test, trace and isolate system, even for the the truckers and so on. Countries like Vietnam and South Korea and others that have managed it, they'd they'd already learnt a lot of lessons from SARS, which of course had never really landed here. They were prepared for this kind of disease. We were prepared for flu. We were looking in the wrong direction. And there's no point in arguing about that. That's just a simple fact. So it's, it's, I think, more complicated than the Lancet paper and uh, Ren Lewis suggest. Uh, and the final point I'd make is that the, you know, seal your border um, strategy is a forever strategy. Because how on earth do you ever open up this side of having vaccinated all of your population? And even when you have vaccinated, um, we know that there are still issues associated with the border. So while I have some sympathy with the theory, which is if you can completely isolate your economy from the rest of the world, and I mean completely, and eliminate with a total lockdown for a period of time, you could have achieved zero COVID. But the fact is, we couldn't do it for very obvious reasons. And those reasons are tied to our inability to do test, trace and isolate. The UK spent over 30 billion on their system and couldn't get it right. The Irish actually wound down test and trace last summer rather than gearing it up. And that's where I think the question should be asked. Rather than simply saying, oh, we should have had zero COVID, it's 
it's it's an interesting theoretical question, but I don't think it's an interesting practical question. I think the practical question should focus on why we weren't able to do tra- test, trace, and isolate properly. So that's my sixpence worth. So I think that, Jim, concludes our podcast for today. We appear to be up against our time barrier, or as always, lots of different things left on our agenda, which will which we will leave for next time. So great talking to you again and speak to you soon. Great, Chris. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. We aim to provide an independent take on economics, politics, and anything else that takes our fancy. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope to have you on board again very soon. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is... AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.